Beautiful evening. It's been a long day, huh? Does it feel longer than usual? No? Some say yes, some say no. Time does funny things on retreat. Sometimes it goes really fast, sometimes it goes really slow, sometimes it feels quite timeless. But so far, we consider this retreat to be a great success. And I'll tell you why. Because none of you has left. (laughs) Really, the secret of uh, the first few days of retreat life is just to stay here and keep showing up and do the best you can. We know it's hard on the first day. You've moved into this strange, slowed-down culture where there's not a lot of stimulation, not a lot going on, and it can be a shock to the system. And in response, oh, it's nap time. Oh, it's so quiet. The energy can kind of sink, or we can get kind of frantic, or we can get kind of impatient. And maybe you've experienced a little of all of that today. Have you been moody, grumpy, impatient, crabby? If so, you're right on course. So tonight I will uh, talk a bit and uh, it's mostly an encouragement talk a little bit about the direction of this practice and a little bit of encouragement to keep going in the direction that we've been exploring so far. So I want to begin with uh, Zen Master Dogen, who some of you may have heard of. One time somebody asked him to describe enlightenment. And what he said was four words. And the words were, suddenly she was intimate. Suddenly she was intimate. What did he mean? He didn't say, suddenly she was filled with everlasting bliss, or suddenly she knew the secret, or suddenly she had psychic powers. No, he said suddenly she was intimate. What does this mean? What could intimacy possibly have to do with enlightenment? This little saying is one of those uh, sayings you come across in the Buddhist tradition that are called pointers. They are like the finger pointing to the full moon. They're not the moon itself, but the, 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 the finger pointing to say, go this way. This is a direction worth exploring. Another pointer that we often hear is the Buddha's uh, 
last words, to be a lamp unto yourself, to be a light unto yourself. That's another pointer. It doesn't really explain anything or maybe even help you, really. It is only a direction. It's like a pointing out instruction. It says to look in this direction, to discover actually for yourself what is the meaning of this. In fact, the whole of the Buddha's teaching is based in this invitation to come see for ourselves what is true. Not to believe something because you read it or heard it somewhere or a teacher said it. And, but actually, all of what we say are pointers to encourage you to want to discover for yourself the truth. Because that is the only real transformative uh, truth that will make a difference in your life. Mindfulness teaches us how to connect with our direct experience. You've been exploring this today through the asana practice, through your sitting practice, through walking. It is a method taught by the Buddha to help us discover for ourselves what is true and useful. When we pay attention... Reality reveals itself. And the more we pay attention, the more reality gets revealed. Now this may seem very far from your experience today. Well, I didn't see much today. I just saw how grumpy and greedy I am. Well, that's a start. That is a start. In our lives, we often, um, I mean, this is really the gift of mindfulness, is, is, is this amazing um, gift that we are given and to have the time on retreat, on retreat to explore the power of mindfulness is quite a rare and wonderful opportunity. In our lives, we pay attention to so many things, do we not? From the moment we wake up in the morning until we fall on our pillow at night, there's just one thing after another coming our way that we are supposed to pay attention to. More and more and more information, more and more and more decisions, more and more choices, more and more. It's just, it's a lot to deal with. You ever feel that way? So the kind of attention that we pay in our lives is pretty superficial. And where we are going with our attention on a retreat is diametrically opposite to that. It is instead of skimming along the surface, it is taking a deep dive into the basic, simple, unnoticed, bare facts of our experience. For example, there are different ways of seeing flowers. 
like hold these flowers up and you think, oh yeah, daffodils, they're, they're nice. If spring, is, if spring is here, it's coming and blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's it. Let's get on to something more interesting. Or we can think, wow, daffodil, that's the name. But what is this? What, what is a daffodil? And what is it really like? So we can get up close and personal and really begin to become intimate with this, this thing we call daffodil. I don't know how it got its name. It seems sort of suitable for what this looks like, but it could be any name, really. Because the name doesn't really, it's just a name. But the thing itself, can we look, can we see, and have we seen in an intimate way all the details and the subtleties of what we call daffodil? That is mindfulness. That is mindfulness. Mary Oliver is the great exemplar in the poetry world of someone who pays intimate attention to the world of nature. She says, there is nothing in this world, if I can pay attention to it long enough, that doesn't cease to foster wonder and love. If there is something, I haven't found it yet. In a poem called Messenger, she writes, My work is loving the world. Here the sunflowers, there the hummingbird. Here the quickening yeast, there the blue plums. Here the clam deep in the speckled sand. Are my boots old? Is my coat torn? Am I no longer young and still not half perfect? Let me keep my mind on what matters, which is mostly standing still and learning to be astonished. That is that quality of interest, curiosity, astonishment, openness, receptivity, that are all part of paying attention in this close way in this intimate way. Henry Miller wrote, the moment one gives close attention to anything, even a blade of grass, it becomes a mysterious, awesome, indescribably magnificent world in itself. Artists know a lot about this kind of way of paying attention. And they bring their discoveries back to us through words, through visual imagery, through acting, through music. This careful, interested observation of the world around us. Henry Miller again said, To paint is to love again, to live again, to see again. I remember well the transformation which took place in me when first I began to view the world with the eyes of a painter. The most familiar things, objects which I had gazed at all my life, now became an unending source of wonder. And with wonder, of course, affection. A teapot 
an old hammer, a chip cup. Whatever came to hand, I looked upon as if I had never seen it before. George Carver, who as a young man, uh, he was a botanist and an activist in his adult life, but as a young uh, boy, he had a natural way with plants. And so people in the neighborhood used to bring him their sick and, he, and, and plants, and he would heal them. When asked how he did that, he said, if you listen to things and love them, they will reveal themselves to you. So this is the kind of attention that we're being encouraged to bring into our minds, into our bodies, into our hearts, to come closer to our experience of these simple objects of attention, like the breath, to come closer to the breath, come closer to this experience of having a body and feeling it moving, feeling it sitting still, feeling the energies of the body, the sensations of the body, really knowing it intimately from the inside. This is the world we're being invited into. And when we do this, what happens? What happens when we open to our experience in this direct and intimate way? In some ways we are changed by that, and that is one of the rewards of paying close attention. When we use the word intimacy in our everyday lives, of course, we tend to think of Intimacy is part of a special, close relationship. That's often our association. And it, it's, it's lovely in that domain. In meditation, we are learning to bring that same quality to a variety of experiences. When we are feeling a quality of intimacy with another human being... There's a a mutuality, is there not? There's a sense of it takes two people to be intimate. You can't be intimate if somebody is like not there. So that mutuality is part of this process of opening ourselves. And even though on retreat we're not cultivating that kind of intimacy, we are cultivating an intimacy with the life all around us. I know that the retreat is working sometimes when I see somebody, say, out in the courtyard, you know, down on their hands and knees, eyeball to eyeball with a lizard. And there's some kind of contact happening there. Or as you have noticed perhaps today in your wanderings about outside, you know, you'll suddenly be struck by a tree or a flower or the beautiful grass, you know, that's just bursting with life or the little birds now that are looking for places to build their nests. They love to come and build in the eaves out in the courtyard. So all this life that suddenly is appearing and that we suddenly are 
feeling connected to. That's very much a part of how this practice works on us. It opens us to connect with the living universe that we discover is all around us. Or the deer. I don't know if we've seen the deer yet in this last 24 hours, but sometimes the deer wander through. They kind of, they don't know what we're doing here, you know, these people walking slowly. They're not afraid. That's one wonderful thing. They just kind of walk along and they look at us. (laughs) We get a chance to really look at them because they're not afraid. So you might find yourself having an intimate moment with a deer, Lovely, lovely. That's all part of this experience of opening that we find ourselves in the midst of. There is a wonderful teacher named Byron Katie. How many of you have heard of Byron Katie? Um, She wrote a book called Loving What Is. She is a remarkable person, actually, who had an awakening um, some years ago, quite spontaneously, one of those mysterious events that can happen, rare, but they do happen. And she was married at the time to a man who... um, loved her. He was very devoted to her. And she had this awakening experience and he began, and she, and he thought, wow, she's really even more loving now. This is great. You know, he loved being married to this beautiful, radiant, loving person. But then he began to notice that she was the same with everyone. It wasn't just him that was the recipient of her love, that she would share her love with whoever came around. And he began to resent that. He didn't like it. He wanted her to be special to him. And that's often how we think of intimacy in relationship, that we're only, you know, really loving and intimate with our special significant person or our spouse or our children and yet there she was radiating love to her and and I remember meeting her for the first time it was like meeting an old friend she was I mean it was kind of striking but that's how she is the reality is that awakening invites intimacy with anyone, with everyone, all of life, people you know and people you've never met before. The Dalai Lama is a wonderful exemplar of this. I've had the opportunity to observe him over the years in a number of different settings. And it's remarkable how everyone almost without exception, feels like he is their oldest, dearest friend. And all it takes is a smile or a touch of his hand, and you just feel like you are completely loved. How does that happen? So there's a man named Charles Cutler who interviewed the Dalai Lama, and he was curious about the Dalai Lama's life as a monk not as a father or a husband, but his life as a monk. So he, he 
writes this. He said, uh, he asked the Dalai Lama, he said, being separated from your family, being raised as a monk from an early age, and as a monk never marrying, and so on, didn't all these things contribute to a feeling of separation from others? Do you ever feel that you missed out on developing a deeper level of personal intimacy with others or with one special person, such as a spouse? The Dalai Lama laughed and said no. The Dalai Lama's model of intimacy is based on a willingness to be open to many others, to family, to friends, and even strangers forming genuine and deep bonds based on our common humanity. Charles Cutler concluded that all of us could seek intimacy in many more forms than we are currently aware of. At this very moment, we have vast resources of intimacy available to us. Intimacy is all around us. If what we seek in life is happiness... And intimacy is an important ingredient of a happier life, then it clearly makes sense to conduct our lives on the basis of a model of intimacy that includes as many forms of connection with others as possible. And this this practice, this practice of being in touch, being connected to our experience in a gentle and open way, moment to moment, as well as the, uh, the precepts of not harming and, and respecting all life forms is very much in the, rec- in the direction of encouraging this recognition of our kinship with life, with all of life, with other humans, as well as plants, and animals and all life forms. We've all had moments, imagine, of seeing ants in our house or, you know, other insects, some of which we may be frightened by or repulsed by. But if we really take a moment to look at them, like the little ants are, you know, they're, they're sentient beings just like we are, just wanting to be safe, wanting to have a little food, you know, they're not that different. We share this planet with sentient beings, beings who, like us, are full of feelings and preferences and desires and fears. That is what sentient means, to be conscious and full of feeling. Viktor Frankl, who wrote a wonderful book called Man's Search for Meaning, was a, was a survivor of, of a death camp during Nazi Germany. And he writes about a woman that he met there who was dying. He was a, a, a doctor, so they, they would send him to the hospital, I guess. I don't know why, because they didn't really have any medicine. But he would go around to the hospital and visit patients, and he met a woman who was dying, but he was struck by her, her very radiant and peaceful demeanor. And so he spent a little time with her and wanted to know what, 
what was helping her in her dying process. And she said it was because of the tree outside of her window that was budding with new leaves. It was her connection with life and it brought her a feeling of peace and belonging so that she wasn't afraid. Just that simple sense of connection with life. So the direction of our practice is very much towards this recognition of our intimate connection with all of life. Whether it is the new leaves of spring or the ants on the kitchen counter or a single blossom on a withered branch. Now, of course, there are all, all also many beings in this world that we feel alienated from, we feel afraid of, we feel disgust for, we don't feel any kinship whatsoever. Does anybody have anybody like that in their life? We think, oh, I could never be like that person. You know, we may have a lot of judgment about the people we feel really different from, or we may fear them. I had a lesson in this many, many years ago when I was working as a psychologist at Juvenile Hall. And in the first month of working there, I was told that I needed to go and interview a rapist. Well, that was about the last thing in the world I wanted to do. And the idea that I had to sit down with somebody who was a rapist was kind of scary, and I had a lot of images of what this person was going to be like, and, you know, just, but there I was. I, it was my job. So I went to meet this young man. He was about 15 years old. And meeting with him and interviewing him, another reality emerged. And what I saw was that he was a young man without any social skills. He was actually painfully shy, going through his adolescent, growing up pains. And in trying to make contact with a girl, he just, you know, didn't know how to do that in an appropriate way. So instead of being afraid or feeling disgusted, I saw and felt great sympathy for this guy. And I could relate. I mean, I, I, I know in myself those feelings of being socially unskillful or feeling awkward or not knowing how to go about, you know, making contact with somebody. I could relate to that part of his struggle which helped me to feel more compassion for him than judgment. And not only that, but the word rapist has, was forever altered in my associations. It's not something I would condone the act, but the idea that we put a label on somebody and that's all they become. I saw, I saw something about that that was 
helpful in my own understanding of how stereotypes are not useful. They take us away from the more complex reality of who an individual is. So in the same way, we could say that meditation practice opens us to the parts of ourselves that we don't like. The parts of ourselves that we have disowned, that don't fit our self-image. You know, maybe we, inside of us, we have a secret hoarder or a Darth Vader of some sort or a, a, you know, different characters that we don't think much of we may still feel as these disowned parts of our own psyche. And in meditation, like it or not, these banished parts will begin to show themselves. And so part of the practice of intimacy, of this this intimate attention, is to begin to turn towards such unwanted emotions, anger, fear, jealousy, rage, hatred, lust, to begin to turn towards those experiences with a greater sense of willingness to understand, willingness to open to that part of ourselves as well. Many years ago, in the I think back in the 80s, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a beautiful poem called Call Me By My True Names, which really speaks to this part of practice. Please call me by my true names. I am a mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, and I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the twelve-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. That is how compassion develops, by opening ourselves to the, the difficult parts of ourselves. A 10th century Japanese poet named Shikibu wrote this exquisite 
little poem that just speaks to this part of practice. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. I knew myself completely, no part left out. That is where we're going on this journey. What it means is letting go of our concepts about who we are, who we're supposed to be, and opening ourselves instead to the living reality of our direct experience, just as you've been practicing today. This is where freedom is found. It's not found in our ideas about things, but in being intimate with our experience as it reveals itself. In doing this, we begin to see the difference between our concepts about something and the actual experience of something. Many years ago, there was a man at uh, Insight Meditation giving a talk one night. He was Joseph Goldstein's uh, first teacher, a man from India. And he was talking on and on, and he said this one thing that I've always remembered, and he said, you know, the thought of your mother is not your mother. No thought you can have about your mother can ever capture all of who she is in her unfathomable complexity. The thought of your mother is not your mother. In the same way, we can say this to ourselves. We can say, the th- I want you to try this on. Just take it in. Say these words to yourself. The thought of myself is not myself. The thought of myself is not myself. How does that feel? What comes from that reflection inside of yourself? Is it, oh no, or is it a relief? Sometimes people say it's quite a relief. Oh, thank God, I'm not that. (laughs) Joseph Campbell said, once you name something, you stop knowing it. Once you name something, you stop knowing it. You've put it in a box. We do this constantly. But we begin to observe this with practice. We begin to see there is a difference between the name and the reality. It's just like you, like what happens in life uh, when you get to know somebody. You know, when you first meet somebody, you have all these ideas about who they are, and then you get to know them. And the more you know them, in some ways, the more you do know them, the reality of who they are. But in the, another way, they, the more you know them, the more mysterious they become. Have you noticed that? That's intimacy, where there's both this deepening sense of 
knowing and connection, but also it seems like it opens up more and more the true mystery of who anyone is, who we are, who you are, So when we open to the reality of things, we are letting go of some of our outworn beliefs and self-images. The other day I was in the drugstore trying to read the label on a a vitamin jar without my glasses. (laughs) I was just, I was standing there like, I can read this. I can I can do it. I can figure I I can read it, but I couldn't. I was completely not true that I could read the label. And then I had to laugh at myself because of course I had this old image of myself as being somebody who didn't need glasses. Now I need glasses, but it's hard to remember sometimes because the habit of thinking of myself in that one way is very strong. But once we open to the reality, okay, the reality is things are more blurry. So I'm now living in a world where things are more blurry. It's not so bad. You don't need to see so much in life, actually. (laughs) So one of the things we have a lot of ideas about, and it comes out on retreat, is we have a lot of ideas about meditation and how it's supposed to be. Have you noticed? How are you doing with matching your ideas of how meditation is supposed to be? Do you feel like you're way ahead of your ideas or way behind your ideas? How many say you're way behind your idea? Yeah, that's what I thought. So we get a chance to uh, see that those are just ideas. If we keep trying to make our meditation fit our idea about it, we're going to suffer a lot. I say better to get more interested about how it is, actually. Notice what is actually going on. And then you can begin to work with reality as it is. How it is, is reality, and it is valuable because it is reality. Reality is our teacher in this practice. Not our ideas about it, but, our, but the reality is, is our teacher. It doesn't need to be improved to fit our images of how we think we should be. So many times on retreat, someone will say, Oh, wow, I didn't know I was so judgmental. Or I didn't know I was so worried all the time. I'm always looking for something to worry about. It's the main thing I do in my life is is worry. Or I thought I would hate the silence, but actually, you know what? I really like it. I really like the silence. I don't and in fact I don't ever want to talk again. <laughs> We begin to see what is actually occurring inside, and that is good news. We are becoming real to ourselves. We are connecting with reality. And reality is the birthplace of wisdom. We get wise by seeing things as they are, not as we think they should be, but as they are. 
Do you know Andy Goldsworthy? Some of you, how many of you have heard of Andy Goldsworthy? Somebody, so I'll, he is an artist who goes out into nature and constructs amazing pieces of art out of what he finds in nature. He doesn't bring any extra materials with him. He just creates out of the twigs and branches and stones and leaves, the flowers that he finds out there in nature. And his, and his work is stunning. It's, it's transient usually. It doesn't last that long, but it's absolutely stunning. So there's a film about him, and in the film you see him building um, a cairn of stones by the, by the seashore. And he constructs, it was pretty big when he constructed this cairn and then it would fall. <laughs> and he would do it all over again. He has great patience. He would make, you know, take hours to build it up again and then it would fall. And this happened three or four times and then the camera zooms in on his face after it falls for the fourth or fifth time and he says, I have not yet fully understood the nature of these stones. That is what he concludes. In the same way, when we see something in ourselves that keeps repeating that we don't like, that doesn't seem to us to be the right experience to be having, can we say to ourselves, I have not yet fully understood this worry. I have not yet fully understood why I'm angry. That is a lesson worth reflecting on, that the things that come to us that are difficult are are our teachers. They are there to be understood, not to be gotten rid of. With this kind of intimate attention, we come to understand ourselves. No part left out. No part left out. And only then is this journey in any way complete. So this process of bringing this intimate, connected attention into our experience requires our very full and wholehearted attention, does it not? You've seen the challenge of that today, to keep showing up over and over again, to keep attending to the what seems like the same old breath, the same old steps, We don't know where this is going to take us. But if we keep paying attention, I promise you, things will open that you could not have imagined. And that is why we do this. So I'll end with Dogen again, Zen Master Dogen, who said, seeing with the whole body and mind, hearing with the whole body and mind, one understands it intimately. This whole-hearted attention. Then we can feel at home in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds. Then we can feel a greater sense of freedom to be ourselves just as we are. No improvement necessary.
at ease, truly at ease with all that is. So I think I'll stop there for tonight. Thank you for your attention. Let us sit together for just a moment or two. May we truly know our intimate connection with all of life. So we have um, about 45 minutes for some walking on this beautiful dewy night. And then we'll, if you have a bit of energy to come back at nine o'clock, we'll. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.